This is Undark. We're a new online magazine from the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. And of course, we're this new podcast. Hello. Welcome. I'm David Corcoran. Each month, we'll bring you interviews and stories from not exactly the frontiers of science, though we may go there on occasion. No, Undark is more about a great big intersection, the place where science meets society, that fascinating and wonderfully complicated terrain where research and ethics and public policy collide. That last line comes from an essay by our publisher, Deborah Blum, to introduce the new magazine. Deborah joins us now along with editor Tom Zeller, Jr. Deborah and Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Ditto. So uh, let's talk about that name, Undark. Deborah, why don't you tell us what it means and why you and Tom decided to name a magazine after it? We were talking about um, wanting a magazine that would illuminate science, but not illuminate it in a kind of cheery, golden, rainbow-infused light, a a light that had, if you can imagine this, almost a light that had an edge to it. And we sat down and we started talking about what name would that be. We were running through all kinds of different names and terms for light. And because I had spent a fair amount of time researching toxic substances in the 1920s for a book I did, All at once, in the middle of this conversation, I said, you know, I remember this very strange but kind of cool term for light that is not real light. And we looked it up. And in fact, if you go back into the 1920s, you can find newspaper and magazine ads promoting life in the undark, life in the not real light, life in a kind of light that was artificially made at the time by mixing radium, the radioactive element radium, into paint and creating this kind of eerie, kind of mechanical blue-green glow that illuminated in a way that was both man-made and scientifically generated, poorly thought out, driven by human need and commerce and curiosity, And as we thought about it, we thought that's the name. That's where we want to go. Poorly thought out. That's kind of a key. Uh, in In what way do you mean that? Well, if you go back and you look at this moment in time when you have major corporations promoting life in the undark, the radioactive element radium is really the next best thing. They've discovered that rocks are alive, right? They glow and they spit and they generate energy. It's the most amazing thing. And people thought of this as a kind of fizzing natural energy that we should acquire and not just acquire. They put it into cosmetics. They had radium-infused condoms. I've often wondered exactly what the results of those were. And they had uh, radium-based paint that made things glow without ever stopping to say, do we really understand this? Do we know what it means? Do we understand what a life in the undark might actually be like? And I think for me that catches uh, a, a, a sense of science that we still see today, that we make discoveries, we find them amazing, we don't fully understand them, but we move forward with them in, in this kind of 
expectation that somehow we know more than nature does, or we can move forward without fully understanding what we're doing. And Undark really symbolizes that to me, that moment of human both hubris and hope. So, Tom, as uh, the editor of Undark, tell us some of the ways in which you're planning to illuminate these dark corners. Yeah, I mean, before directly answering, I mean, I I think that, you know, it was sort of an evolutionary process. And a lot of it sprang from the moment where we landed on the name Undark. Deborah had a much better understanding of, of what undark meant and how it reverberated but as soon as we alighted on that name and it was it was sort of instantaneous i mean as soon as she said undark i think i even said that's it um that's the name um and and as we came to understand what the implications were for appropriating that name i think that's partly where our mission took shape and it was very easy at least in my mind to to bridge that idea to a lot of stuff that both of us have seen as we've covered various issues that that uh, occur at the the intersection of science and society, whether it's uh, the dumping of toxic waste near communities of of color and minorities, whether it's uh, we're watching it unfold in Flint right now uh, with tainted water, that involved the the active and passive complicity of scientists who worked for the state of Michigan. Um, and that becomes very important to us as, as a reporting target, and it fits directly in with uh, what we set out to do when we, when we first started conceiving the magazine. You know, science has this amazingly human, complicated decision-making process that often, I think, the what I'm going to call the public, people who are not aware of that process, they don't see it. They see the endpoints, but what they don't see is how we got there. And so we wanted to get at that kind of backstory of science. That was really important to us in the way that you think we live in a moment in history where all of us have to be science literate enough to navigate decisions, be they about climate change or lead pipes or um, wildlife conservation or uh, lead bullets, which I would like us to write about. That's one of my favorite causes. But one of those things, when we talk about science literacy, it's as important to understand the backstory as what we tend to always see publicly. And I think without naming any publication, too often what people see is the story that floats on top. And what we really wanted to get at was the story behind that. What's the story that lies behind that? How do we illuminate that best? Because if we're really going to make a difference, if we're really going to help people navigate a world in which the decisions and consequences of science and technology are shaping the future, then we have to understand what is behind as well as what lies visible to everyone. And that's really where we wanted to go. And can I just add to that? I mean, for whatever it's worth, you know, there are there's there's a substantial list of publications that Dev and I both deeply admire um, and and would hope to emulate the journalism that they do, um, particularly as they relate to the sciences. It's not as if we're you know charging in here and saying, "Hey, nobody's doing this. Look at us do it." Um, right. But. But and you know those go from you know David you you headed up the Science Times at the New York Times uh, which does 
cutting edge coverage of the sciences right up to Scientific American. Um, Both and, of us wrote for the New York Times yeah. and are huge fans. So, but I really do feel that um, two things. On one level, not all of that reaches the masses. Um, and maybe it's too lofty a goal to think that we will be the ones who do or that we can or that, um, uh, that you know, our tiny website will, will bridge that gap. But it's aspirational for me to be able to do that. And I also think that there's, there can't be enough uh, publications that are dedicated to this idea uh, particularly in an age when there is just so much complex information out there that that has political implications, has economic implications, has social and cultural and uh, even sometimes racial implications. The fact that um, science and complex technical information are often interwoven with that in ways that don't really get dissected and teased out in your everyday news story is something that I feel like we can kind of come in and help do. And, and we have the Knight Foundation and the Knight Science Journalism Program uh, supporting us as we do it. And and I guess I just wanted to throw that in there so that it's clear. So this substance is both wonderful and terrible, becomes what is called undark. And uh, the name that we're using to try to illuminate this place where science and society meet up. Tom, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which the magazine will try to do this. You've got a number of standing features. Uh, tell us about some of them. Uh, well, uh, so far what we've got, I mean, when we originally set up the magazine, we, we conceived of three sort of tiers that we would focus on. Um, one being long form, deep investigative uh, material that we're calling case studies. And we have maybe a half a dozen of those projects currently underway. Beneath that, we we were hoping to have a monthly mix of uh, reviews, essays, op-eds, columns, and we're calling that sort of middle section variables. Uh, and in that, that's where we've been publishing the most since we launched. And and there, I think we're we're already gaining some traction. We have uh, the great science writer, former New York Times columnist uh, Maggie Corth Baker who's doing a, a column for us called Convictions, which looks at the intersection of science and law enforcement and criminal justice. And she's already produced a really great column that looks at uh, the psychology and sociology, or lack thereof, in police interrogation tactics, particularly when working with uh, interrogating suspects who are young or cognitively impaired. I mean, that's sort of, to me, emblematic of just what we want to do with, with Undark. I agree with that completely. I think that's wonderful. And I think that our bloggers, Alexis Fitzsobel and Alicia Bajak, have also explored stories that I just hadn't seen elsewhere in terms of uh, the helium short of generships comes to mind. That was a wonderful story. Or Alexis did a really smart look at uh, going behind the scenes on our lack of research into firearms, which is another area that we would like to dive into deeper. And so you're starting to see, I think, across all parts of the magazine, even though we're just getting started, that kind of ethic appear. We uh, also have scheduled, and maybe Tom could speak to this better than I can, a really beautiful 
uh, video series on climate change that will be coming. Yeah, we do have, uh, we've commissioned a six-part short video documentary series produced by Ian Cheney, uh, who some of you may know his film King Corn, which won uh, several awards. But he's taking a look at climate change through the lens of scale. So uh, climate change, why is it so far hard for us to wrap our minds around it, uh, the scale of the problem in that sense? Why is it such a gnarly political uh, problem to deal with? Um, so he's doing some really, really thoughtful, and he's, he's interviewing a lot of folks here in Cambridge, in fact, and at MIT. Um, he's doing a really thoughtful look at that. And we, we hope to underwrite more uh, video documentaries and visual journalism in general as part of our our mission. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention Deborah's brilliant uh, idea for a column in which, uh, and this is by way of saying we're not all doom and gloom uh, here. We do have some fun stuff to read at Undark. This would include a, a column or a series called What I Left Out, or, or we call it Wilo for short. Uh, in which we bring in great science writers who come and share an anecdote or a passage or a narrative that for whatever reason did not make it into the final manuscripts of their of their published books. And boy, it's turned out to be a really popular thing with, with writers who, uh, many of whom don't even have a book out at this point anymore, but boy, they've been really just aching to tell this story that their editor made them cut or... And, and often it's really interesting and powerful stuff. I don't know if you want to add to it. Yeah, often they're just amazing stories that didn't make it into the book. And we have one coming up, which involves the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn curing his own cancer with a root and some vodka. And I cannot wait to publish that. And that is not a dark story, obviously. And so we'll, uh, on the podcast, we'll be skimming the cream from all this fabulous stuff that you're getting ready to publish. Um, it's already up there, right? Undark.org. And why a podcast? What kind of value does that add? You know, I think, and this is important for an old print journalist like me, I think that podcasting is such an innovative new way. It's, I, I think, new, which probably speaks to how long I've been doing this. Podcasting is such an innovative way to tell science stories. It, people listen to a story differently. You can light up an explanation in a way often that sometimes you can't do just with words. You can explore things through sound that sometimes makes them come alive in a way. And I hate saying this because I'm a narrative writer and, and I worship at the God of words, but but podcasts can really illuminate what we're doing in ways that sometimes the printed word cannot. And if we're going to have a digital magazine, I think that we would short shrift ourselves by not including this way of telling stories. I also just want to throw in that I was personally a big fan of the the podcast, the Science Times podcast at the New York Times, mm -hmm. which uh, you know had a really fabulous host. And I was I was sad to see it go. Um, and you know, one of the things that really that that podcast and other podcasts like it did for me was when I didn't have a, time, a chance to catch up on the latest news. I mean, it didn't even have to be a, a story produced in the field. If I was able to have access to some smart folks sitting down and talking about uh, an issue or a story uh, where an issue was dissected in depth. 
and gain value from that while I'm out on a run or while I'm driving in my car. I mean, that's a service that I feel like we have to provide uh, our readers in 2016, our, our audience, I should say, in 2016. And so we are deeply, <laughs> deeply grateful to have uh, you guys involved in helping us do that. And excited about it. Yeah. Okay, so lots of riches in store, both for readers and hopefully for listeners. Book market, undark.org. We've been speaking with Tom Zeller, the editor, and Deborah Blum, the publisher of the new online magazine, Undark. Thank you both, and best of luck to you. Thank, Thank you. you. Now for cross-sections, Undark's home for breaking news, analysis, and reader and listener comments. Cross-sections co-anchor Aleshu Bayak brings us this story of a fragile coastline struggling back from a devastating hurricane. It all changed after Katrina because that high water just, ooh, it wreaked havoc through that area down there. That's Earl Jackson. I found him fishing on the side of a two-lane highway in St. Tammany Parish, a half-hour drive east of New Orleans. He's telling me how, more than a decade after the hurricane, the land here still hasn't recovered. Jackson points south. I know down in Delacroix, places like that, the marsh has changed. We used to go out fishing. Go out there now, you turn around and look back, it's different from what it used to be. This is the sobering reality of the modern, storm-ravaged Mississippi River Delta, a lingering and expensive problem at which politicians and engineers continue to throw a whole lot of money and sand. Louisiana is in the midst of a $50 billion, 50-year plan to rebuild its disappearing marshland and reconstruct its delta's protective shield of barrier islands. And earlier this year, a federal state task force approved more than $70 million of coastal protection and restoration work in wetlands like Fritchie Marsh and barrier islands like Grand Isle. I'm 30 miles northeast of New Orleans in St. Tammany Parish standing on a perimeter highway that surrounds Fritchie Marsh. Since their construction in the 1950s, these perimeter highways have impeded the flow of fresh water and nutrients to Fritchie Marsh, converting more than a third of it into open water. Then, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina eroded even more of it away. But now Fritchie Marsh has been slated for a facelift. Under a new plan, part of Louisiana's master plan for the coast, sediment will be dredged from nearby Lake Pontchartrain and used to nourish Fritchie and hopefully recover some of that historic marshland that's so good at buffering storm surges. That might come in handy the next time we have to weather a 100-year storm. But some Fritchie Marsh residents aren't too optimistic about the reconstruction plans. Roy Darby, a crab fisherman living in a newly built elevated house here, thinks it's futile to pour money and sand into Fritchie. I don't, I don't know. That's, I heard they were going to pump sand from right out from Lake Concentrate right into here, but I only heard of it one time, and to me, that would just be asinine. I don't even see the purpose of it. That's the complicated thing about Louisiana's disappearing delta. There are hundreds of marshes like Fritchie and a long string of barrier islands that could all be improved. So how do you decide which is worth the effort, especially in the face of increasingly tenacious storms? I put that question to Giannis Giorgio, director of the Pontchartrain Institute for Environmental Sciences at the University of New Orleans. We don't rebuild barriers for storm protection. We don't rebuild barriers for, we build barriers for not what they do during one event, but what they offer to the entire ecosystem over decades. 
The coastal restoration projects that are most successful are engineered to deliver a trickle-down effect of benefits. For example, a project that creates marshland that shelters young fish. It also gets reinforced with sand and sediment that, when eroded, will feed two other adjacent areas. It's not just about building new land or minimizing our land loss with gains. We can't do that. We know that. Yes, you're going to build land at a slower rate, but what if the mineral sediment you're adding and the opportunities for that sediment to go on the marsh platform makes your present footprint more resilient to other events, right? It helps those marshes build more organic sediment, right? And keep pace with sea level rise. That, scientists, politicians, and fishermen can all agree, would definitely be more bang for your $50 billion buck. For Undark, I'm Alesh Ubayak. Now the tracker segment of our podcast, uh, we're going to be talking each month to Paul Rayburn, Undark's media critic. Hi, Paul. Hi, David. So, Paul, tell us about the journalism tracker. What is it? And this is uh, 2.0. Right. So the tracker, the original uh, website was called the Night Science Journalism Tracker. And that started, I believe, in 2006. So it's, we're about the 10-year anniversary of that. And that was a daily blog. Uh, the idea was to look at um, science journalism, medical journalism, environmental journalism, pick out the good and the bad and say why they were good and bad. And this had uh, not only an educational component, but a, but a, but a bit of a, you know, a watchdog aspect to it, too. And um, it got quite a following and was very successful. I wrote for it. Charlie Pettit wrote for it. Deb Blum, the publisher of Undark, wrote for it for a while. And it was paused at the end of 2014 when uh, Deborah Blum, our publisher, moved to MIT. And it has just been uh, last month was uh, reignited. Uh, with a column called uh, Rogue Public Information Officers, Rogue Press Officers. And so now we're back in business as at least a monthly column. Well, we're, we will have a monthly column and two blog posts a month for things that come up that we think need a quick response. And uh, so here we are. The tracker is back. Um, what kinds of standards do you use in evaluating science journalism? Do you have a checklist or how do you make assessments? I don't have a formal checklist. I probably should. I sort of use all my wits, all my senses, I guess I'd say, to try to determine what's good journalism. Uh, I do have uh, a, a particular bias, though. My bias is as a defender of old school journalism values. So, for example, in the internet, a whole lot of journalism is a mix of opinion, commentary, objective news, rebuttal, arguments, all kinds of things, and and those things are not always kept separate. Uh, the problem is, as you start to think about these things, you begin to wonder what exactly that phrase means, objective journalism. You know, things change. I've just been thinking about this as something I might mention in my next column, actually, so here's a little preview, perhaps. Certain things start as opinions or as contentious statements, and then they become facts. So 20 years ago, let's say, if you had written in an objective you know, news story in the New York Times or the Washington Post that global warming will 
have important effects on climate, possibly for the worse. That was a hotly debated statement at that point, and you would have to, you know, give it attribution, make clear that that was not a widely held view, or at least not, not an exclusively held view, that others disagreed. Now, there are a lot of things we can say about climate change and global warming and carbon dioxide that are no longer subjects of debate. What would not have been objective journalism 20 years ago now becomes objective. And so it's an interesting thing, and I've got a few stories in mind that I want to look at and try to explore that notion of what objective journalism really means. So let's talk about your current column, 2.0.1, I guess we'd say, in which you cover two important scientific developments, the possible existence of a new planet and the uh, curative effects of chocolate milk, which it turns out in the great cosmic scheme of things are related. <laughs> yes. So this is, I covered the uh, these things in the unusual, strange tracker way of covering them. Uh, and that was not to look at the stories themselves, but to look at the press releases and, and the release of those stories to journalists, how that was handled. So with the case of the possible Planet Nine, the story in, in a nutshell is that researchers have looked at the movement of some objects uh, at the edges of the solar system and have made a case that there is a Planet Nine out there. Very exciting news. Um, needs to be confirmed. Complicated thing, but you know, a big, big science story. No question about it. What happened? The two primary authors were from Caltech, California Institute of Technology. And Caltech called in about a dozen reporters and gave them advance information on this story on what we call an embargoed basis. That is, these news outlets were uh, explained that the deal was they could get the information a little bit ahead of time, uh, have a chance to work on their stories and polish and think about what they wanted to say, and get access to the researchers themselves for interviews so that when the story actually broke, they could put out complete stories on the minute that the story broke. This was a, a great help to those 12 reporters and a, a source of huge aggravation to the other 10,000 <laughs> reporters or whatever it might be who didn't get privileged access. One of those was from a small, obscure news uh, outfit you might not have heard of called the BBC. Uh, so even some of the big guys, you know, were excluded from this thing. And it was a reporter from the BBC who put me onto this thing. And so, you know, I asked Caltech, of course, I said, why did you do this? It's not fair. Uh, it's perfectly fine to release information ahead of time with an embargo to, to hold it until press time, but uh, not really fair to do it for some and not for others. And first I got no response from Caltech. I got an email that says we will not be commenting on this story. And then a new person at Caltech in the communications area sent an email and said, I don't know what happened. I wasn't here then, but we won't let this happen again, but offered no explanation of why it was done this way. Then, in the course of working on that, I found out about another bad release of information. This one even more shocking in some ways. The University of Maryland put out a release about a particular kind of chocolate milk that could protect student athletes from concussions. Now, the idea that athletes, particularly student athletes, might suffer from 
concussions from playing football or other sports is a huge, huge story. I think most listeners will be familiar with at least some aspects of that. So the idea that some sort of, you know, readily available drink could reduce susceptibility to concussions was an even bigger story, potentially. Uh, except the spoiler here is there was absolutely nothing to this. Andrew Holtz at Health News Review got in touch with the University of Maryland and said, I'd like to see the study on which this claim is based. And Maryland said, we have no such study, <laughs> which is a problem. Further, this particular chocolate milk was made by a company that has some kind of financial partnership as an industrial partner of the University of Maryland. So there's a clear conflict of interest there in terms of the university putting out legitimate information. And further, 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 what's even more distressing is the press release is still there. It's been the subject of several articles now, all of which have pointed out, including my column, that there's absolutely no basis for this. So I emailed the University of Maryland. I checked again just before we started this podcast. The release is still there, and I got an email back from Maryland saying, we have no plans to take down the release. So... If we want to debate whether or not there's anything to this chocolate milk, fine. Maybe the people who make it have a case to make. But until they make that case, take the release down. Did this get picked up widely? Did uh, news media around the world pick up the story and run with it? Uh, it got picked up by a few local outlets in Maryland, not any of the bigs. And, you know, that's a comment, too. I think most people, experienced science writers, looked at this thing and, you know, at the least, what they had to say was, I don't know whether there's anything to it, but there's no way to tell. There's no study, there's no information, so I'm staying away. You know, so this is something that, that also comes up in these situations. Uh, sometimes, you know, talented science writers and experienced science writers will stay away from these stories. Sometimes if the stories start to get play, then the veterans with the expertise will come in and write what we call knockdown stories and just take it apart. You know, we see a, a claim of a cure for something or a new drug with fantastic results. Often it turns out that the real story is not the fantastic results, but the fact that something inappropriate was done in publicizing those results and that they may not have the evidence behind them that we'd look for. Yeah, and in this day and age, it's so easy to pick up something like that and send it out on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, and then it spreads, and writers like you uh, are kind of playing a game of whack-a-mole where you're you're trying to bat it down, and, and it just pops up in some other forum. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we I mean, the social media works for us and against us. It's It allows inappropriate things to spread, but it also gives us a chance to get out there with a with a response or a critique. And we hope with, um, you know, with the tracker at Undark, we'll build on the following that the previous tracker had and attract more people and really have, you know, without sounding like too much of a weepy idealist, um, we, we hope that science journalism gets better and the tracker is just our little, you know, tiny contribution toward that end. Paul Rayburn writes the Tracker column for Undark, and he's going to be talking with us each month on the podcast. Paul, thanks a lot. Great to talk to you, David. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. 
subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. <laughs>